Welcome to Life Science Marketing Radio, the podcast where marketing leaders inside and outside the sciences share their creative ideas and practical approaches to increasing your marketing ROI. Here's your host, Chris Connor. Hello, everyone. So March uh, this year is experimental episode month because I've got another different format today. This episode was originally recorded as a session last year at the ACPLS annual meeting. It is a panel discussion that I led about using publicly available data on funding and publications to use in your marketing. And You're going to find this episode highly edited because the sound in the room was great for my panel, but uh, my microphone makes me sound like I'm in the back of the room. So rather than have you adjust your ears to those levels going back and forth, I'm going to fill in sort of the questions and then pull out the highlights of the answers for this thing because also it doesn't really work to have you listen to a presentation across a number of people that happen somewhere else. It doesn't feel like they're talking to you, but my editing should make it a little more intimate for you today. Also, Aaron Sorensen, a member of the panel from Digital Science, gave a slide presentation that is a backwards look at the funding and publication record of Carl June, who brought the CAR-T treatment, essentially, to market or into humans. And so we're looking back at at that whole process. And what I'm going to do is pull out his segment describing that slide presentation and put it in the show notes so you can see the slides in a slide share and listen to that audio clip while you're looking at it. Otherwise, I'm going to let him and the rest of the panel answer the more general questions about how to use this kind of data. So first, let me introduce uh, my panel. I have Craig Dobbs, who is the Vice President of Marketing and Sales at TriLink Biotechnologies. Andy Bertera, who has been on this podcast before, is the Executive Director of Marketing at New England Biolabs. And as I mentioned, Aaron Sorensen is a Senior Bibliometrics Consultant at Digital Science. And I, I really appreciate all of them helping out on this episode. So at the beginning of the panel, we're talking generally about uh, this story is about precision medicine. We're, We're talking about the use of data, but we're looking at a particular case study, if you will, in precision medicine. So I asked Craig Dobbs to put a framework around what exactly is precision medicine. Thank you, Chris. Uh, I think precision medicine is just the latest iteration of what was going by personalized medicine. um, And who's to say what the next iteration is going to be? But this is either taking uh, specific uh, 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 genomic information from a patient and producing a customized, personalized uh, drug specifically for not only that patient, but for that patient's particular ailment. Um, it's taken on a lot of uh, uh, different forms lately. Certainly the, uh, the CAR-T therapies have uh, been in the press most often, but we're seeing somewhat of a resurgence also with uh, oligonucleotides, with uh, the, the recent um, approval of Spinraza at, uh, at Biogen also. And then given his description, I asked Craig to describe what kind of products we're talking about that people would be using in precision medicine for the purposes of this conversation, anything from 
basic research all the way through to the clinical trials. Yeah, uh, certainly. And I think as we'll, we'll get into it more in depth, I think uh, for the, the group here today, uh, this particular market is is very open in that you're, these, these customers are using uh, anything from basic genomic research all the way through uh, more classical biopharmaceutical manufacturing. So uh, everything from hardware to informatics, software, uh, and as really what I see as a uh, growing industry for molecular biology reagents. This is kind of on the being on the cusp of providing uh, GMP grade, if you will, molecular biology reagents, which is uh, somewhat new to this area. As we were putting this session together and I talked to the members of the panel and Chuck Drucker, the head of the ACPLS, we all kind of focused, um, or they all kind of focused on a story that I didn't know about, but I certainly do now. And it's a nice example of the use of precision medicine. And it revolves around a girl named Emily Whitehead, who was suffering from the most common form of childhood leukemia, and all her chemotherapy treatments were not quite working. And were clearly not working and her parents are in that situation where they're thinking about having to say goodbye to her or find something else that works and so this is the story um, that we're telling and we're using as an example here and and her story and i just wanted to point out that we all work in this industry and we think about getting more leads selling more product and so on and somewhere in the back of your mind you know that this ends up in a nice result for a clinical application but we don't always get uh, the privilege to see what a nice result that can be so i'm going to put a couple of videos up on the show notes page you can see her before her treatment after her treatment um, spoiler alert she's now a healthy 12 maybe by this time 13 year old girl um, but it's pretty exciting and then Aaron Sorensen's going to tell the story of Carl June who kind of pioneered this this treatment that we're talking about and he's going to tell that in terms of his funding sources and his publications and what we can learn from that for that you'll have to go to the show notes page and look at the slides and listen to the audio that I've put there. Um, but it's an interesting story about how Aaron even found out about Carl June. And I'm going to let him tell that story right now. I was at a conference in DC, shared a taxi with, uh, from the conference to the DC train station with, with a fellow attendee who was at um, the university of Pennsylvania. We just started talking and then we, sh we went the whole train ride home together and then we started talking about, you know, personal things like work-life balance. And, I, and she said, oh, my husband, he's this very busy physician at the University of Pennsylvania. And I said, oh, really? What? And, and she said, things have gotten crazy in the last couple of years. And I said, oh, why? What happened? Is he promoted to department chair or something? And she said, no, he, he figured out a way to cure kind of these patients with leukemia who have no other options and they're about to die. And he 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 um, does some genetic reengineering of their T cells and he puts them back in and 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 so it's amazing and and it's thrilling but <laughs> I don't see him much anymore um, and so that's when I first heard about um, the the work that that Carl June was doing so the, the 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 woman I was speaking with is his second wife and and what kind of motivated him to really step on the gas pedal to try to get things that are only being done in, in mouse models into patients was his first wife 
in uh, 2001 died of ovarian cancer. She, she had been diagnosed in 1996, and she had a five-year struggle with it. And so he, in 1996, he was basically a pure uh, lab scientist at the uh, Bethesda Naval Hospital. And he just committed himself to trying to translate this, what he was working on, to, to get it in people. So it turns out that just the week before this panel was happening in last October, um, another CAR T therapy, which is chimeric antigen receptor on a T cell, uh, had been approved by the FDA. And we were discussing the potential for this type of research to take off and that companies were going to pop up all over the place trying to develop new targeted therapies specific for different um, types of ailments. And so I asked Andy Bertera to comment on that type of data that Aaron had just presented as well as data from other sources and how marketing organizations can use that data to find new opportunities. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, before I answer the question, I just want to say, if you haven't uh, heard about Emily's story, she was the patient, then take a look at the, the video. Um, to me, it's actually one of the reasons I think a lot of us come to work every day. You know, our uh, contribution in the products we sell and the services that we offer is infinitesimally small, you know, relative to these breakthroughs. But uh, it's, it's frankly friggin' awesome that we're uh, part of this industry and making even those small contributions to this, these sorts of breakthroughs. So it's a, a wonderful story. But to answer the question, I think most of the uh, um, uh, salespeople and marketing people uh, in life sciences have some kind of scientific background. So data is very common to us. And uh, I think through the sessions yesterday, and I'm sure today, you, there's an underlying theme of how uh, data is actually important to the work we do. In fact, uh, in Stephen and Mike's uh, session yesterday about insight selling, you know, also known as the challenger model, you know, understanding your customers is actually key. And that's not just understanding their name and where they go to work. It's actually understanding what they do, why they do it, what motivates them, and things like that. Same on the marketing front. Uh, segmentation is obviously a, a core aspect of any uh, uh, marketing activity. But if you bring it up today and use terms like account-based marketing, which is obviously in vogue at the moment, again, it's all about identifying your customer, what they do, and all the rest of it. So understanding um, our customers is key, and the data uh, that backs that up is actually uh, paramount. In the example shown, we were obviously looking at uh, you know research that was leading into uh, pharmaceutical funding and eventually uh, therapeutic. Uh, but in the academic sector, we're obviously somewhat uh, lucky that uh, the role of an academic, for the most part, is to publish their data. And that data, you know, is all out there with their email address usually attached to that lead author, what research they're doing, what products they actually use. And this information, when you combine it with your own uh, data that you have as to what products you buy, you start to build up a picture of them. So rather than Dr. Smith being a researcher that you know is buying this particular enzyme or buying that particular instrument, you can actually look at the publications and say, oh, Dr. Smith is not only buying that product, but he's actually uh, um, uh, studying this particular cancer. Uh, and then over time, you start to build up more information. You can use some of the funding data that Aaron date, uh, highlighted to actually say, oh, okay, he's getting uh, this money in terms of NIH grants. And that grant is usually predictive of where they're actually going with their research next. And then uh, if you look at, obviously, uh, publication trends, you can also see you know, where they're going. The other aspect that I think is important uh, as it relates to data and looking forward is obviously artificial intelligence. 
Wouldn't it be great if, uh, you know, you had uh, some kind of system that was tracking publications and you've been selling this customer this one particular product and all of a sudden the publication says they start using their competitor's product. Now, publications can sometimes be six, nine months obviously behind when they, uh, uh, the work was done, but if you get a red flag saying you might want to visit this customer you haven't visited for two years because they're now, you've been taking them for granted and they're now starting to uh, use a competitor's product, wouldn't that be an awesome uh, way of using the data to direct where you uh, uh, use your marketing and resource effort? I love the personalized approach, and maybe that's the most beneficial. But if I'm just starting out, how will I think about looking at this data and saying, all right, here's how we're going to use what's available in terms of either published papers or funding that we know has been granted where the work hasn't started? If I interpret your question one way, I think that the CRISPR data is a good example of that. Uh, you know, you probably could have seen the trends in this before you actually read one or two papers. You know, um, and then you you know you realize you know because I think if you go back and look at other things um, like uh, meganucleases and uh, other sort of reincarnations of uh, a CRISPR type technology, genome editing technologies, you can see how those technologies take up and then die and then take off and then die and then how CRISPR actually has taken over all of those uh, uh, going forward. So I think if you know the words you're looking for, you can actually see you know, what scientific trends are taking off. And then the key is obviously to dig uh, a few layers below that to try and find out who are the um, where those papers are actually being published. And as you know, in CRISPR, you've got uh, almost uh, the analogy somebody told me it was like the, the old rap wars of the East Coast versus the West Coast. And you can see these two sort of populations of data and publications on the West Coast and, uh, and East Coast of the US. And then obviously other places starting to uh, pop up uh, over time. So. so I asked Andy, if I'm looking at this data and I'm spotting some trends, for example, what would be my approach to using that in my marketing? How would he go about it? Obviously, it depends on the, well, A, you have to have uh, something to match with that uh, trend in the first place, sure. but assuming you have uh, an offering. I think it really depends on the life cycle where you are. If you can identify these trends early enough, then really it's uh, uh, you know trying to build relationships with those key opinion leaders so those publications that they're actually um, making contain your products. Uh, I can give you an example in actually in the, in the CRISPR field where New England Biolads had an enzyme uh, that uh, was actually put on the market, I, th I think over 10 years prior to when, uh, uh, if not longer than that, when CRISPR was actually introduced. And in some of the seminal papers, this enzyme was used as a, I'll just keep it simple, as a QC method for this. And that enzyme went from, um, you know, sort of... Uh, well, uh, a few tens of thousands to going up to being a six-figure uh, enzyme. And to be honest, we didn't promote it at all. It was those early publications that actually uh, took it off. So you can actually see our sales mirroring the actual CRISPR sales of that one particular enzyme. So if you can get in with these key opinion leaders early and actually you know, uh, build a relationship with them, tinker and you know, uh, modify the products you already have or new products so that it fits with their specific workflows, and they publish using those, you know, that's the best marketing that you can ever get if a customer comes back to our discussion earlier, a little bit about uh, customers advocating for your products. That's the way to do it. So, and then the mass marketing comes on the back end after you've got those publications in play. At that point, I went back to Craig Dobbs and I asked him, can you use this data in any way in a forward-looking manner, not from a marketing communications point of view, but from a product development kind of view to see what might be possible based on the trends you've identified? Yeah, certainly. Um, as Andy was saying, um, 
there is a tremendous amount of data out there. And as a marketer, I think, particularly in this gene editing field right now, um, the amount of information that's, that, that's coming in is immense. And it's very easy to get, if you will, hypersensitive to all this information coming in. And, and being able to identify a trend or an outlier, I think, is uh, at least how uh, we've been able to better leverage our capabilities to service the market. Um, we had a very similar situation uh, where a particular nucleotide triphosphate was starting to be ordered and had been a very standard product for 15 years. And all of a sudden, it started to, uh, to creep up more and more reached out to the uh, the research to understand the application, and that kind of drew us into the uh, the gene editing uh, market very quickly. Then it's just a matter of, of, of reaching out to anyone in that marketplace um, and basic research internally. Uh, publications are a big source, but another big source is just the network itself, um, reaching out to existing customers and uh, understanding who, who they're working with directly also. Additionally, uh, Again, there's the, the network here, uh, or your, your colleague networks. Um, in particular case, we saw uh, a particular opportunity growing rapidly that required enzymes from NEB uh, for, for us to move forward. And so knowing Andy, uh, being able to pick up the phone and, and further develop that relationship also helps to then uh, support the marketplace that much more. And, and again, there's so much information uh, uh, coming in on a daily basis. Um, yesterday in Science Magazine, there was a, uh, a publication on the latest, quote unquote, revision of CRISPR technology that is could potentially replace the, uh, the, the existing one. Also yesterday, there was a publication in Nature um, where they figured out a way to do nucleoside swapping, um, a much safer technology than deletion. So again, it's it's getting that information quickly, but then also trying to temper it a little bit and understanding how much resource you should apply to uh, to further expanding um, that uh, that potential opportunity. Now, Craig has just mentioned information or a piece of data he got yesterday, and I asked him, "Do you have Google alerts on those things? How did you find that out?" You know, it's funny because it's not really old school at all, but uh, uh, Google Keywords um, is a great, great service to use. And you can put 30, 40 keywords. Um, I caution you if you put CRISPR in, you will get probably 30 or 40 uh, um, uh, uh, citations a day. Um, but it's just it's, it's a tremendous amount of information out there. And uh, I think part of it is, is really just investing the time to, uh, to, to prioritize, to uh, triage almost um, the information that's coming in. And uh, sometimes you hit it and you get lucky and, and sometimes you, you go down a path that, that doesn't pay off, but um, all those paths need to be investigated. After all this great advice from Andy and Craig, I went back to Aaron and I asked him what other kinds of data besides publications and funding information is out there. And he brought up something that I thought was very interesting. I'm going to let him tell you about this thing called Altmetrics. Yeah, so um, it's actually my last slide. Uh, could we go there and then maybe come back to the, the other two if, if, um, if necessary? So 
Um, one of the really new interesting things that's come to be since maybe 2013 um, is this idea of altmetric. So within the scientific, the world of science, um, for a long time now, citations have been kind of the metric that you use to judge how important a given piece of work is. Um, but with this, with social media and the web and things like that, people started saying, you know, citations take a while to accumulate. So a paper comes out and it might be two, three, four years until you have enough citations to really make a judgment as, is this a blockbuster discovery, blockbuster paper, or is it just kind of average? Um, so what all metrics do is as soon as a paper comes out, and, you know, there are all these people with their uh, Google keywords, they start tweeting about it or posting on Facebook. Now, not your everyday person, but people who are either scientists themselves or, or somehow connected with that um, scientific community. And, and there, are, there are people who write blogs about it. Papers get cited in policy papers. So, you know, the, the World Health Organization or the U.S. government could commission a policy study on something, and that's not part of the peer-reviewed literature, but it still will cite papers. So, so Altmetrics is this whole new um, source to measure online attention being paid to any um, scientific discovery, and you get that almost in real time. Like within the first three months of a paper coming out, you will know, based on Altmetrics, the degree to which this thing caused waves, at least in the online community. That doesn't always translate in the future to importance within the scientific community, um, but it's really interesting. So this is the, um, the car um, timeline over the last year, and, and you can see like uh, that you know, there, there are times of, of very quiet <laughs> kind of minimal mentions um, in, in various forms. But then there are times when it just goes crazy. So in January of 17, um, and then more recently, you see that little hill at the end. And, um, you know, Chris was talking about some of the new announcements. And, and so that kind of hill um, at the end of the summer and, and then now into fall is, is probably because of the FDA um, approvals of, uh, of a couple car um, therapies. Well, there you got a little taste of what a panel discussion is like at the ACPLS annual meeting. This year's meeting takes place in October in San Francisco. You can go to acp-ls.org to learn more about that. The next episode will be a straight-up interview I recorded with one of the speakers from last year's meeting, so I hope you'll come back for that. As always, I uh, really appreciate word seems to be getting around about this podcast. So I want to thank you if you've been sharing it. If you haven't, there are probably two people you know that would really love to listen in on these conversations. So please share it if you will. And I hope you have a great two weeks. I will talk to you then. Bye-bye. <laughs>